the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I survived my medical procedure that required a COVID-19 lobotomy before I could actually have the procedure done. So I'm glad to be back behind the mic and looking forward to today's program. James Blinn, by the way, will be joining me for the lighter side of the news later in the second hour of today's program. Uh, we do want to start out with some headlines for the day. We'll also be sharing our interview of the week with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. It's a story of how she is a caregiver to her mother, a rather cantankerous 90-year-old who denied her cancer diagnosis, how she learned to serve her well. So we'll share that with you in the first hour, and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news in the second hour of today's program. Also, one quick heads up, we'll share with you some information about a prayer vigil that's coming up this Sunday at the Portland Police Bureau. If you are interested in joining with others in prayer, that Sunday afternoon, we'll give you the details in the second hour of today's program. First, looking at some of the day's headlines, just days after Joe Biden declared he would transform the country if elected, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont predicted on Wednesday that the uh, former vice president could become the most progressive president since Franklin Roosevelt. His remarks, which drew a quick response from the Republican National Committee, came as a joint Biden-Sanders task force released a wide-ranging set of recommendations for the Democratic Party's convention platform. Well, the compromise they came up with, if implemented, will make Biden the most progressive president since FDR, Sanders told MSNBC. It did, um, it did not have, needless to say, everything I wanted, everything that Biden wanted. Well, Sanders added there was a real honest effort to find co- a compromise between left-wing supporters of Sanders and establishment Biden backers. But the RNC, not sitting on its hands, cast doubt at the level of effort involved in the task force. RNC spokesman Steve Guest noted that the Biden-Sanders task force had lifted numerous passages word for word from Sanders' previous platform. The fact Joe Biden has embraced Bernie Sanders' radical agenda verbatim is proof that while Bernie may not be the one leading the Democratic Party, Biden is more than happy to be his champion in its um, lurch to the left. Uh, Guest tweeted before taking a shot at Biden's previous plagiarism scandal. Bottom line, Joe Biden has years of experience copying, copying rather from others. Now his task force is straight up copying from Bernie's 2020 campaign proposals. Well, the Democratic Party has indeed shifted to the left in recent months, and there are indications Biden is on board with the new progressive wing. For example, Representative Ilhan Omar, the Democrat from Minnesota, on Tuesday, called for dismantling America's system of oppression, citing the country's economic and political systems. The uh, Biden campaign didn't respond when asked on Fox News uh, if the former vice president agreed with Omar. Other Democrats introduced a bill this week that would defund prisons, eliminate live sentences, and allow um, uh, undocumented immigrants to vote and provide them with free lifetime education. Biden recently said uh, money absolutely should be directed away from police departments. 
Well, despite recent polls that show Joe Biden as the heavy favorite in November, a political science professor is still standing by his prediction model that shows President Trump having a 91 percent chance of winning a second term. Uh, Stony Brook University professor Helmut Northput, he uh, is doubling down on his primary model, which has uh, correctly predicted five of the past six elections since 1996 and every single election, but two in the past 108 years, mediate uh, reported on Wednesday. The primary model gives Trump a 91 percent chance of winning in November. This model gets it right for 25 of the 27 elections since 1912 when primaries were introduced. Well, the two elections the model failed to predict were in 1960, the election of John F. Kennedy, and in 2000, the election of George W. Bush. Uh, Northport's um, model examines presidential primary results, not polls, as the strongest indicator of the outcome in the general election. According to Northput, uh, Biden is in the much weaker position than Trump because of his poor showing in the first two primary races. Before making the stunning comeback in South Carolina primary and carrying the subsequent races, Biden came in fourth place in Iowa with just 15.8% of the vote and came in fifth place in New Hampshire with just 8.4%. Mr. Northput stressed the um, uh, that enthusiasm is key. In other news, Nikki Haley's making the uh, case to reelect Trump, warning that we will lose our rule of law if Biden wins. And Donald Trump Jr. says the radical left entirely controls Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. Some of the themes you're going to hear in the next few weeks and months leading up to the election. Well, Horace Lorenzo Anderson Sr., whose 19-year-old son was fatally shot in Seattle's Capitol Hill organized protest or CHOP zone last month, joined Hannity on Wednesday to discuss what has happened since he appeared on the program last week to discuss his son's death. He says, a lot of things have happened just because of your show. I believe that, Anderson told the host. I want to uh, just say, first of all, I want to give my heart out to everyone because of your show. People have been reaching out to me from around the world. I've got cards from around the world, people I don't even know, just reaching out to me saying, you're a great dad and just different things. I wish I had a dad like you, things like like that, you know, it has been very overwhelming. Well, Horace Lorenzo um, Jr. was killed early in the morning of June the 20th uh, when shots rang out near Cal Anderson Park uh, at 10th and um, 10th Avenue and East Pine inside the protest zone. A 33-year-old man was wounded in that same shooting. On the 1st of July, the elder Anderson told Hannity in an emotional interview that neither a local police nor Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin had reached out to him about his son's death. They need to come talk to me and somebody needs to come tell me something because I still don't know nothing, he said at the time. Somebody needs to uh, come to my house, knock on my door and tell me something. Following day, Anderson received a, received rather a condolence call from President Trump. And in other news, Seattle held a, se- a segregated training session on undoing whiteness and encouraged staffers um, to forfeit guaranteed physical safety. I'm not really sure what any of that means, but as an African American woman, I find it all quite disturbing. Also, yesterday was a good day for religious liberty at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says Congress can't get Trump's records for now. But attorneys in New York can. Joe Biden and Sanders released their leftist unity platform for Democrat uh, 
uh, voters uh, yesterday. And if Biden follows the platform compromises from the task force, he'll be the most progressive uh, president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Sanders says Biden says he would restore pre-Hobby Lobby contraceptive mandates in the wake of the Little, Little Sisters ruling. And Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, key figure in the impeachment charade, announced his retirement in a scathing statement. Finally, Trump met with Mexican president at the White House despite uh, Democrats' objections if Trump and Lopez uh, first face-to-face meeting. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear a conversation with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. It's a reference to her rather cantankerous 90-year-old mother who was given a cancer diagnosis, terminal, and her three years of caring for her in those latter years. We'll hear from Anne-Marie Hancock shortly. Also in the second hour of today's program, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, a surge in um, coronavirus hospitalizations is straining hospitals in several states, according to the Washington Post. And the CDC is weighing early vaccine access for minorities and other at-risk populations. Meanwhile, Atlanta mayor, she is uh, defying the governor, ordering masks to be worn in public spaces. And Ivy League has ruled out playing all sports this fall due to the pandemic. Ivy League schools, of course, not um, being at the top of the list in terms of uh, playing sports. Uh, New York City public schools will reopen with blended learning models this fall and schools closures threaten kids more than COVID-19. That's what pediatricians are saying. Back to school, no thanks, say millions of new homeschooling parents. And with no end in sight to the coronavirus, some teachers are retiring rather than go back to school or rather not go back to school. One third of American families missed their July rent and housing payments and 10 percent fear that they could lose their homes in the next six months. New Yorkers look to the uh, suburbs and beyond and other city dwellers may be next. Well, signatories of letters criticizing cancel culture began to cancel themselves, of course. And New York City Councilwoman, she has she freaks out over a white man holding a black child. It hurts people, she says. Again, nonsensical. Andrew Jackson, the statue is going to be removed from City Hall in the namesake uh, Mississippi Capitol. And Seattle held segregated training sessions for white staff aimed at undoing their whiteness. Uh, Communist China's leash on Hong Kong tightens, choking an accountability uh, broadcaster. Uh, Things heating up there more and more. And China has rebranded Confucius Institute in an effort to quell global backlash. Uh, Seoul mayor, the mayor of Seoul, uh, who left will-like message, uh, has gone missing. There's a massive search underway and an environmentalist's apology. I was guilty of alarmism. That should be framed and put some prominent place. Trump has 91 percent chance of winning re-election, according to one political science uh, professor who uh, whose calculations have been uh, correct more than 95 percent of the time. Seattle's leadership cleaned up CHOP, the protest that occupied about six uh, city blocks, only after being told federal forces were about to act. That's what President Trump said. Uh, We were going in. We were going to uh, go in very soon, he says. We let them know that, and all of a sudden, they didn't want it. So they went in uh, before we got there, but we were going 
uh, in very shortly, the president said, end quote. Well, Trump has been a tough critic about the way Democratic leaders have responded to the protests that erupted in the wake of George Floyd's death in police custody on the 25th of May. The president has been clear that he wants Americans to know that he is the law and order choice in the 2020 election. We were all set to go into Seattle, he said. Frankly, I looked forward to it. And other related developments, Seattle Ice Cream Parlor has banned police who are carrying weapons, and Seattle held segregated training sessions, which I've now mentioned more than once. A councilwoman wants to overthrow the racist capital, or rather capitalism in general. Uh, Good luck to her on that. And the president seems um, on another crash course with Democrat governors over schools reopening. Jay Inslee from Washington and Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, two Democrats, appear at odds with the president over his push to reopen schools for the next school year. Both governors said Thursday that virus data, not presidential pressure, would determine their decisions, which they said remained in the um, prerogative of the states, not the White House. Well, decisions about schools and how to have them and when to open them on site or otherwise will remain with the state of Washington, Inslee told reporters at a news conference. Uh, These are Washington students and Washington state has the legal authority to make decisions about their education. The president said our country has to get back uh, to um, uh, economically and students back to work. It's got to get back as soon as possible. And I don't consider our country coming back if the schools are closed. The president called for the reopening of schools, and that has drawn backlash from his Democratic opponents. Schools considering uh, ways to reduce uh, infection risks are working on getting back. And UC Berkeley links um, outbreak uh, to there to fraternity parties. Astronomers have found something never seen before, not yet to uh, fully defined, and a retired Georgia professor says uh, she was doxxed over cancel culture opposition. Colin Powell is suggesting the media had hysterical reaction to reports on the Russian bounty intel. Meanwhile, Democrat Nancy Pelosi has shrugged off vandals destroying monuments. When asked about vandals ripping down a Columbus statue, the Speaker of the House shrugged and said people will do what they do. The Supreme Court appears to rule against Trump in a pair of cases, though once you dig into it, it doesn't look so clear. From the story, the Supreme Court on Thursday ruled that President Trump is not immune to a subpoena from Democratic Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. over his financial and tax records and declined in a separate case to issue a definitive ruling on whether congressional committees can have access to the president's financial records, pretty much throwing both issues back to lower courts. And uh, Hugh Hewitt explains that the the Supreme Court of the United States gave believers um, much to celebrate, saying the Supreme Court's trio of decisions in recent days, buttressing that right to free exercise of faith, will define the Roberts Court just completed year as one enormous significance and success. David Harsony, he points out it's been clear for some time that the Constitution, as written, is uh, incompatible with the progressive agenda. This is really Uh, The reality that drives the hysterics over Federalist Society endorsed judicial appointments over the Electoral College and over other counter-majoritarian institutions. It's why Pfeiffer and others advocate expanding, really uh, neutering the Supreme Court. It's why a growing number of left-wingers argue that the Senate is a fundamentally unfair institution. Biden has promised to undo the decisions favoring religious institutions. Make note of that as well. And CNN anchor um, uh, Don Lemon declared that Jesus admittedly was not perfect. Speaking to fellow CNN host Chris Cuomo, here's the thing. Jesus Christ, if that's who you believe in, Jesus admittedly was not perfect when he was here on earth. So why are we uh, uh, deifying the founders of this country, many of whom owned slaves? 
Cuomo appeared clueless to the bad theology. And of course, he was unchecked during that exchange. Oh, well. Meanwhile, in city in Seattle, rather, the city council says they will cut 50 percent from the police budget. The mayor wants them to slow down, but they have a veto proof majority. And so it goes. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll share a conversation with uh, my guest, Anne-Marie Hancock. You can't drive your car to your funeral. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You might recall a week or so ago, we spoke with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. We were talking about how to make provision for your mother, father, grandparent who might be in a nursing home during this pandemic. But she's the author of a book, and I wanted to give some time to talk more about uh, what she has written as a caregiver. She was the caregiver for her mother, which was no easy task. Her mom was in her 90s. She denied the existence of her cancer diagnosis. She refused to give up her car or her independence and lived alone until the end. Well, the book was written, according to my guests, again, we're talking about you can't drive your car to your own funeral, with a hope that readers would find loving solutions to the stressful challenges of caring for a dear one, even a difficult dear one. Well, joining us once again to talk more about that is Anne-Marie Hancock. Again, she's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral, <laughs> to Your Own Funeral, which is her third book. Welcome back. I'm so glad to have you with us. Oh, Georgine, you're lovely to have me. I'm smiling listening to you, but you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> well, explain for it's us the title real. of the book. <clears throat> the title actually uh, came as an afterthought because the family made so many comical, uh, humorous comments about mom and her love for her automobile. She had a little red Toyota. And her license plate was, I hope you're ready for this, perfect, P-R-R-F-C-T. And mom lived in that car, and more so at the end of her life. And as a family, we pondered, you know, what exactly is the deal with this car? And so I started uh, talking to some friends. My daughter has a master's in psychology to Corey and uh, started looking at uh, dream interpretation with a friend who does that. And I found it very interesting because the car is the vehicle that takes us to something or away from something, to a dream, to a mission, to a goal. And for my mother, that little Toyota was her ticket to freedom. She was totally at peace and independent and in control, driving that little car around. And many of our stories that are both philosophical and humorous took place in that little Toyota. <laughs> so the car is very, very significant, and I do believe my mom thought she was going to uh, take that with her right to her death, and she <laughs> almost did. She renewed her driver's license at age 91, we uh, had the talk as a family and said, Mom, you have earned the right now. Uh, you've got some challenges going on, that being squamous cell cancer that had gone to her brain, uh, cracked her spine, and took the side of her face. Mm. And uh, that having been said, 
we said, it's our turn. It's our turn to take you wherever you want to go. That's our delight. <clears throat> and what we heard was, I'm an independent woman, and I drive my own car. So um, we said, well, it's a little little late to be renewing your driver's license, and you haven't been feeling well. I feel just fine, and I'm doing this. And we thought it would pass. And one morning, just in a whisper, uh, it was around 9 o'clock, I heard her voice in the morning, Anne, are you there? I said, yes, Mom, you're talking to me. You, you dialed me. Yes, yes, I know. Don't be smart. Okay, what's going on? Where are you? Well, I'm at, I'm at DMV. I just renewed my license. <laughs> I said, Mama, Mama, did, did you have to drive the car? No, just had to read two lines of the eye chart. I'm out of there now. I said, are you headed home? Would you like me to? And I'm going to Walmart. I'm going shopping. And that was that. And mom's car had lots of little nicks and bumps. And some I personally experienced when I was with her. And I would say, oh, my, my, what happened here to your light? And we've got to, uh, Tommy, my husband, we've got to have that fixed. It's fine just the way it is. Somebody must have bumped me in a parking lot. And uh, we would just end the conversation. And I said so many stories. Uh, Mom was a character. She was so feisty, <laughs> so courageous, and just outspoken. You, I mean, she had always been outspoken, but I think more so and without filter uh, in her sickness and uh, towards the end of her life. We were driving down Charter Colony in Virginia. I thought we were going to the cardiac surgeon. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard, Ann, you're a moron. And I pulled over to the side of the road, Georgine, and I said, what did you say, Mom? Do you, is something wrong? And you're a moron. I said, Mother, two years ago, I was in Ireland researching our family name, which is M-O-R-A-N. And sadly, it's pronounced moron. I was told that all over Ireland. And that makes all of us, Mom, one big family of morons. <laughs> she looked at me. I saw a little tiny grin. And she said, Anne, you're not funny. I said, Mom, I wasn't trying to be. It's a true story. But instead of saying, Georgine, we're not going to cardiac today. We're going to the GP. It came out uh, angry and personal. You're a moron. And while I've already established I'm happy to accept that, I realized that mom was terrified. The people who are suffering and who are taking these end-of-life journeys, uh, they are in a state of fear. They are making this trip alone. And so many have so much advice for them. And none of us, none of us like someone talking at us. And sometimes not even to us. Sometimes 
silence is golden. And I had to learn. I thought I could handle this three-year journey um, well. I had a healing uh, ministry that took me all over the world, Italy, Venezuela, Sisi, all over the United States, national talk shows. And um, I had enormous experience with death and dying. But this was a horse of a different color. One, it was family. Two, it was personal. And there were the moments, like I just described to you, where there is a tendency to take things personally. And you know, Georgine, I know from my TV background, uh, everybody isn't going to love you all the time. Life isn't like that. And for every 700 wonderful comments, you're terrific, you're the best, I love you, I wouldn't miss you. There's the one that says, I don't like you. I didn't like that show. And what we learn as pros in the professional life is that we can't take it personally. We look at it, we evaluate it, and we say, do I look like I stuck my finger in a light switch today? Was my hair that bad? And then I say, well, no. I mean, the studio did it. It's a new look. No, I don't like it, but it, ha- it will have to suffice for now. And I let it go. Someone else calls and says, for instance, you're a moron. You look at it and you say, well, my comments were well-researched. I did my homework. I thought I was logical and patient. I'm going to dismiss this. And I think carrying this over to uh, end-of-life journeys and caretaking, you must carry that lesson with you. Absolutely. Because with family, it's much more difficult, much more personal. And this is your mama calling you a name. Yeah. And uh, it goes straight to the heart. It certainly but you does. Have... Go ahead. I was just saying it certainly does. I need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with uh, my guest, Anne-Marie Hancock. She is the author of several books, but her latest is You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral, <laughs> to Your Own Funeral. <laughs> and it's a, a great book that um, invites readers to take an adventure with a courageous woman's journey through the latter years of her life through her daughter's eyes. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. We're talking with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. Um, and it is a book in which she chronicles three years of caregiving of her mother. Uh, her mother, um, she writes, operated with uh, without filter. She remained in denial about the cancer diagnosis. She challenged the prognosis and uh, comments from doctors, nurses, family, and friends. And the book was written to share her experiences, Anne-Marie, her daughter's experiences in loving and caring for her mother through the heartaches and the joys, the times of laughter and sadness. And caregiving certainly includes all of that. 
Um, once again, tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from just being a daughter to becoming a caregiver for a very independent, outspoken woman who wasn't necessarily looking looking to be taken care of. You know, Georgine, I don't think there are any accidents in this life. I, I really don't believe there is any moment in our life that's an accident. And for me, I've, I've led a very, very busy life, been on the road a lot, have a beautiful family. I have two sisters and one worked full time. Um, I have another still working and um, they actually uh, have more difficulty with mom, uh, willing to uh, do what they could. But I decided with my experiences I'd already shared with you, with healing, my love of children, particularly terminally ill children, my husband and I lost a child, that Mm -hmm. I was up to the task. And the healing ministry had taught me so many lessons. But I think what God was trying to do was teach me a few more to increase my sense of humor, to learn uh, not to take these things we were talking about in the last segment personally. And um, also spiritually, I really had days where I came to know what it, what it means at the deepest level to depend on him. And yes. I am totally convinced he was carrying me in those moments because I'm a human being. We all are. And I would come home some days and I'd go, all right, God, I have conversations with God. Um, I, I would crawl in bed at night and I'd say, you saw it all. This was not the best day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've used all the tools in my box and I just, I don't know what to do. I think I failed. And I would simply ask God every night, as corny as it may sound to people, and I was an old debater, ranked nationally in debate, a hard-nosed reporter, but I was humbled by this experience. And I would say simply to God, please, I'm going back in tomorrow morning for the day. Give me your heart. Let me speak as you would speak. Let me hear only as you would hear. And I convinced myself and knew that I would get the best guidance. I learned some days to just be silent, that mom didn't need to hear my babbling. I learned through that prayer that some days, though I bring books that were rejected, uh, mom would tell me I needed to watch more Archie Bunker or I needed to read a, I think it was Nora Roberts, a Nora Roberts book, or I need to tone down and be less serious and watch Notre Dame football. (laughs) So I learned through all of that, that it was very difficult for her to talk about this journey. This is why she never said cancer. This is why when she saw a TV commercial with a chiropractor, she said in the spring, I'm going to see that chiropractor and he's going to fix my spine. What I learned through prayer, through a sense of humor, through not taking things personally, through not taking her on and questioning her 
statements or decisions. I learned to roll with it and yeah. say things like, we'll check that out, Mama, in the spring. I would carry books. Mom did not want to talk about uh, anything spiritual. And God is always at the top of my list. And uh, here I am hauling books in and quite a variety. And then I'd come back the next morning and the books would be stacked at the door. And Mom would advise me once again that I needed to lighten up. So uh, I let go of it and uh, stopped addressing that, even had a priest call her one night. And I realized the, I was making myself the issue. Mom was the focus, not me. I was concerned about her spiritual connection. And because I was focused, basically, if you really look at that on myself, I wanted the priest to call her and talk to her to see if she had anything to say. And so Father Glass called her. I asked him to call me back. I was concerned. He called me back in two minutes. I said, what happened? He said, your mother said she's great. Asked me if I saw the uh, football game on Saturday. (laughs) And she said she was busy and had to go. I said, oh, she didn't. She did. You ask her if she wanted to talk about anything? And he said it was pretty clear, Amory, she was busy and didn't need to chat. Uh, It was a very quick conversation. I do remember, Georgine, one day, as I said, those uh, my stacks of books would be at the front door uh, every other day, and that was my message, get them out of here. And uh, I finally, when I let go, when I absolutely let go and learned that Silence is sometimes golden. I don't have to go in and chatter up with my issues, which at the top of my list was, you've got to say something here before this ends. You've, you've got to talk about God. You've got to talk about where you're going. And uh, I realized that she didn't, that she was very private. She was private about everything, and that's why that car was so significant. She, it, she was private in the car. She was independent in the car. So I would go and turn and just sit and uh, pick up food items that might be on the floor, take food items out of the refrigerator that uh, maybe were moldy because she was too unwell to do that herself. I would organize her meds and close my mouth. And one day towards the end, she said, I want to tell you something. Are you leaving? And I said, uh, do you want me to? She said, I want to say something to you. I said, shoot. You know, you brought me that book, that one book. I said, which one, Mom? That John Paul book, you know, and they had those prayers in there. I said, did you like that? Well, it was all right, uh, but it's it's too much. It's a big book. It's a fat book. It's too many pages. But But I said a couple of the prayers. And that was one of the most special days for me. (laughs) Yes, yes. And what is totally fascinating, there are 365 days in the year. And my mother passed on the feast of St. John Paul. (laughs) I am totally convinced he took her by the hand 
on her journey back to God. You know, I so appreciated you can't drive your car to your funeral because you it's filled with humor, it's entertaining, it's a quick read, it, it uh, you pr- offer some practical advice on how to approach a loved one, and you approached your mother with love and respect regardless of the response you may have gotten back. You listened to her. Um, you were willing to set aside your own interests. And I can so relate to this because, as you might recall, in our first conversation, I told you that my mother lives with my husband and me. She's uh, 89, um, and I am her caregiver. And through this pandemic, that's been something of a challenge, uh, as, along with being a tremendous blessing. But the way you approached your mother with love and respect, and that's, that's I think, two of the main things you have to do, especially with a parent, really inspired me and challenges me and um, reminds me that God is sufficient to equip me. He gives grace for the the journey that you're called to. And you were able to love your mother right through to the end. And I, I know for me, I've been, I, I've said, I want to walk my mother home well without regrets. And uh, every day, just like you, God has given me the yeah. grace to say the right things to do. I don't do it perfectly. And there are days like you when I uh, lay my head on the pillow and said, man, I didn't do that day very well. But God, again, <laughs> gives the grace. So I just loved um, hearing your journey that affirmed so much of my own and challenged me in some other uh, some areas as well, and will I think our, our listeners too? You know, Georgine, I think I, it's it's very very humbling to be a caretaker. Yes, I thought I had all the tools from all my years praying with people and being with the terminally ill, but let me tell you, I was to learn humility. Yes. We're all God's children. He didn't divide us. We divided ourselves. We are all his babies. He loves us all the same. And you said it beautifully. Each deserves love and respect. And when you are on this lonesome journey towards the end, there is so much fear and there is private grieving and then there's private making resolution with God the lessons, some of them were for me to learn, yes. to learn peace, to be at peace with myself, not to uh, judge, to continue to maintain a sense of humor and to laugh at myself and at life and my humanity, my humanity. You're, you said it again wonderfully. We are not perfect, but we are ordinary people on extraordinary journeys. That's right. Well, Anne-Marie Hancock, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and look forward to our next exchange. I would love that so much, <laughs> and I would love to know how you're faring in your journey. But uh, I am very much at peace uh, with mine and very much at peace with the book, which proceeds all go to multiple sclerosis. My daughter has suffered with this for 20 years. If you go to my website, authorannemariehancock.com, all information, interviews are there, but most of all, there is a letter from the winningest coach in all of basketball, Mike Krzyzewski, who fell in love with my daughter some 20 years ago. He wrote a letter uh, about the book, but about Corey. He compared her to Michael Jordan when he mm. worked with Mike in the Olympics. And uh, my daughter is a perfect example of 
just smiling through her whole journey, never complaining, always grateful to God that she wakes up to another day. And she is another patient who is my teacher. Yeah, yeah. Once again, Anne-Marie Hancock, author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're going to take a look at some of the headlines from the last couple of days when we return. We'll also share with you the lighter side of the news in the following segments of today's program in, uh, in which James Blend will join me. So looking forward to that. Well, a judge has blocked the removal of Confederate monuments in Richmond. Mayor Levar Stoney bypassed the law to order them removed from the story. Stoney said that he uh, he was invoking his emergency powers to immediately remove the statues instead of following the lengthy process outlined in the law. I mean, the law. What's the law? He said he was concerned about public safety amid continuing protests and fears that protesters could get hurt if they tried to bring down the enormous statue themselves. So the rule of law will jettison that just because for safety's sake, rather than try to protect the monument and try. Anyway, you know how it goes. Meanwhile, Mr. Blasio has condoned the Black Lives Matter marches despite the uptick in COVID-19 cases. Large events are canceled, but the mayor makes an exception again. And Democrat Ilhan Omar got uh, her husband paid nearly $900,000 as a consultant. She married him in 2018. And the Big Ten announces football games will be in conference only, cutting travel time. Well, Washington, D.C. federal district judge Emmett Sullivan is refusing to dismiss the criminal case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and is now arguing that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals aired when it ordered him to do so last month in a two to one ruling. Sullivan, through his attorney, Beth Wilkinson, filed a petition on Thursday for a so-called en blanc review by the entire D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, arguing that the three-judge panel was improperly trying to force the district court to grant a motion to dismiss it had not yet resolved, in reliance on arguments never presented to the district court. In addition to deep uh, deep staters James Comey and John Brennan, maybe it's time to indict Judge Sullivan as well. Well, yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled that a huge swath of the state of Oklahoma is Native American land for certain purposes, siding with a Creek Nation man who challenged his conviction by state authorities in the territory, according to CNBC, which goes on to explain the decision means that only federal authorities, no longer state prosecutors, can lodge charges against Native Americans who state prosecutors um, commit serious alleged crimes on that land, or alleged rather, which is home to some 1.8 million people. Of those people, 15% or fewer are Native American. Writing in The Federalist, Jonah Gottschalk says the implications are immense and only beginning to be understood. He adds, this case appears to establish that the state of Oklahoma does not have the right to convict American Indians within the 19 million acre zone. Moreover, hundreds of felons with tribal membership are currently imprisoned and their convictions will now be in doubt. This uncertainty was placed in the forefront of um, Chief Justice John Roberts' dissent. Well, anti-rule of law protagonist Nancy Pelosi shrugs off mob destruction in Baltimore, saying people will do what they will do. Joe Biden is maneuvering to steal Trump's thunder with economic nationalism. His plan 
uh, virtually parroting what President Trump has already said. And Congress wants to narrow the future aid about big business raked in by uh, in millions in the first round. It may take weeks to uh, to know the presidential election winner. Let's hope not, because one can only imagine the havoc that will wreak. And MSNBC has appointed a radical leftist, Joy Reid, as Chris Matthews' replacement. U.S. Treasury sanctions uh, Chinese entities, officials using, I think it's Magnishkai, a human rights act, and China vows to retaliate against the U.S. sanctions. Army investigates a handout suggesting that Trump campaign slogan constitutes covert white supremacism and uh, arrests along Mexico's borders jumped 40 percent last month. Billions of passwords are now available on underground forums for those who are looking for them. And Nashville schools are going to start an academic year remotely for all of their students, according to the Tennessean. Meanwhile, parents rather are struggling with the possibility of online classes this fall. Good reasons exist to reopen schools, Dr. Anthony Fauci says, as do do a collection of pediatricians. In health, Gilead says that remdesivir's coronavirus treatment reduces the risk of death. The back and forth continues as well. And plasma uh, therapy successes uh, are stoking high hopes as well. Wearing a mask cuts one's own risk of novel coronavirus by 65%, according to research. And despite the recent coronavirus surge in southern states, three states, New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts account for about 42% of COVID-19 deaths in America. Half of Americans have used telehealth services during the pandemic, and some predict that's the wave of the future. Jobless claims at better than expected 1.3 million total getting uh, benefits falls to 18 million, and the pandemic is accelerating the death of malls. Big Ten is moving to con- uh, to conference-only model for sports this fall, and Madison Avenue Business is suing Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio for riots, estimating $100 million in damage. This day in history, 1509, theologian John Calvin, a key figure in the Protestant Reformation, is born in Nyon in the former administrative region of um, Picardy, France. 1919, President Woodrow Wilson personally delivers the Treaty of Versailles to the Senate and urges its ratification. 1925, jury selection takes place in Dayton, Tennessee, in the trial of John T. Scopes, who's charged with violating the law by teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. Scopes would be convicted and fined, but the verdict is overturned on a technicality. 1973, the Bahamas becomes fully independent after three centuries of British colonial rule. And in 1985, bowing to pressure from the irate customers, the Coca-Cola Company says it's going to resume selling old formula Coke while continuing to sell new Coke. And finally, in 1991, Boris Yeltsin takes the oath of office as the first elected president of the Russian Republic. Well, Oregon uh, made national headlines when the coronavirus count reached record-breaking heights with 389 new cases and six deaths on Thursday. The numbers for today, Oregon reporting 275 new confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 cases with two deaths added to that list. Well, daily coronavirus cases surged to a record-breaking height once again, in the, according to the Oregon Health Authority on Thursday, reporting the 389, the record case counts comes one week after a state official reported the previous high of 375, which was followed by three consecutive days of 300 cases or more. In today's numbers, the COVID-19 claimed two more lives in Oregon. Uh, raising the state's death toll to 232. The Oregon Health Authority um, uh, reported at 12.01 a.m. today. 
Oregon Health Authority reported the 275 new confirmed and uh, presumptive cases uh, from uh, Clackamas, Benton, Baker, Crook, Deschutes, and many other counties across the state. Oregon's 231st COVID-19 death is a 62-year-old man from Union County who tested positive in mid-June, died the 2nd of July at um, St. Regional Medical Center in Boise. He had underlying medical conditions and the 232nd COVID-19 death, a 99-year-old woman in Lincoln County who tested positive on the 26th of June and died on the 9th of July. Uh, The location, uh, location of the death is being confirmed. She had underlying conditions as well as uh, the age of 99, which is uh, one of the reasons I'm sheltering in place, broadcasting from home to pre- uh, protect my mother, who is looking forward to celebrating her 90th birthday this December. Well, coronavirus infections have spiked since Oregon began reopening its economy on the 15th of May. Not really surprising. New state modeling of infection rates and hospitalizations released on Friday predict the pandemic could spread dramatically by the end of this month. If transmission remains at current levels, we expect continued exponential growth of infections, report from the Oregon Health Authority says. Well, the forecast predicts that the state could see anywhere from 1,100 to 7,300 new cases per day by the end of July, depending on where infection rates head from here. The modeling suggests that only 20 to 30 percent of those new cases are being formally diagnosed through testing. Also today, Governor Brown announced the makeup of the new police training task force. She uh, formed the Public Safety Training and Standards Task Force to outline uh, new rules. The task force, which was first announced uh, earlier this month, June 9th, or last month, I should say, the 19th, after several weeks of nationwide protests against police brutality and in support of racial justice, is charged with recommending improvements in the training and certification of Oregon police officers. We will follow that Um, process as it takes place in the next weeks and months. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The only difference is James Blend has joined me for these next couple of segments to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Mr. B, how you doing? You know, I'm doing okay. It's a Friday. It's, uh, you know, middle of July, and uh, I'm sitting inside. Uh, all right. Uh, it's not doing great. It's it's a weekend, but uh have exciting, exciting weekend planned. So, actually, we, we are actually doing something. Uh, we are going to the zoo this weekend. I don't know if you know, it's reopening. Oh, the zoo is reopening. Zoo so is what reopening. are the what are the protocols for going to the zoo? I mean, it's outdoors and people don't tend to congregate, but what are right. the protocols? There, of course, social distancing, masks, the, the, the whole nine yards. They're only letting uh, – you have to buy tickets all ahead of time and you have to schedule. You have to take a time slot and there's only so many people per time slot uh, you can get in so that the, there's never too many people in the zoo. Not everything will be open. Um, but do you uh, have to have your temperature taken or answer I a series of you know, questions I before you enter? It didn't indicate that they would or would. I mean, I'm certainly fine with it, but um, no, I didn't see anything on either of those possibilities. So we'll have fun. Sounds yeah, like a that'll fun be nice. time. It, it's the first time you know really gotten out to do something in quite some time. Yeah, that's great. With a little five year old, I'm sure she'll really enjoy that. She has missed now, the zoo. Yeah, imagine if you will. You take a retreat, a silent retreat for 75 days, and you return home, and everything <laughs> everything has changed. 
Well, that's precisely what happened with a man who emerged from a 75-day silent retreat. Uh, And the first thing he said was, did I miss anything? Well, he won a legion of fans online when he revealed that he had been on a solitary retreat for 75 days, only to return in May with the triumphant tweet, did I miss anything? His name is Daniel Thorson. He cut himself off from society in a remote cabin in northwestern Vermont as part of a monastic community back in March. Well, he's a podcaster and a philosopher. He was completely disconnected from the outside world and free from 75 news cycles When he finally logged back onto Twitter as the world was struggling to cope with the coronavirus pandemic, well, his story went viral itself, as uh, many wondered, um, what would be his biggest question and his reaction to the news that occurred while he was um, meditating, sleeping, walking, and eating alone in a rural space? Well, many people joked that nothing had changed, but others said he missed history on steroids. Well, this 33-year-old staff member of a monastic academy Uh, He's been compared to Rip Van Winkle, who, of course, is the fictional character who falls asleep in the Catskills, wakes up 20 years later to find the United States is no longer ruled by Britain. After two days back, Thorson observed, and this is the contemporary, uh, people at the grocery store seem more anxious than I remember. He told the New York Times that he hadn't installed the COVID-19 operating system yet when he walked into Shaw's supermarket. I'm not sure if he was wearing a mask or not. He's been uh, the interest of many, but he doesn't feel all that different. He said what his experience was very similar to what the rest of us are experiencing. So it wasn't as remarkable as it might have been if things had just ticked along as as usual. But can you imagine uh, being Rip Van Winkle for 75 days, returning to uh, the population, finding that, wow, a lot has happened in that period of time? Well, I mean, at least we need we didn't need to give him a covid test. Yeah, I I suppose that's that's, that's the one plus. I mean, but uh, yeah, it's certainly one of those things that, uh, you know, going to this monastic shut off life, shut off from everybody. I think the biggest change is uh, what he went up to do uh, voluntarily. We're pretty much all doing by force now. So, you know, (laughs) absolutely. And I love his his line when he first emerged. Did I miss anything? You know, people are taking uh, going to great lengths to try to deal with this self-isolation that we're under, this sheltering in place during the pandemic. Well, one eight-year-old dog uh, trots through the streets of his city several times a day with a straw basket in his jaws, taking vegetables, fruits, and packaged foods to customers uh, of the uh, area. Um, It's a chocolate Labrador retriever, and he's uh, uh, paid with treats and messages uh, um, from residents in the area, but he is doing a lot of the delivering Uh, in the neighborhood that he's from. So what do you think about doggy deliveries during a COVID pandemic? Is that like scuba eats? (laughs) I I don't know. You pat him on the head, you give him a treat. He brings things to and from his neighbors in the area. I mean, you know, as long as you don't mind teeth marks in it, I suppose that's fine. (laughs) Well, he's biting the the basket handle. So, Although um, I know you'd want the contact-free delivery. Absolutely, which means the dog would not be a good delivery person. But anyway... People are uh, resorting to all kinds of creative uh, ideas to get what they need during this uh, this season. One guy from Cuba, he donned a full-body cardboard shield against coronavirus, a box on his head, a box uh, covering his torso with uh, holes poked in it for his arms and legs. And so he uh, looks sort of like a cardboard robot, but he's navigating his uh, community with um, without any contact, wearing cardboard boxes. That's one way to social distance. 
Yeah, the guy and not, is 80- and not because of the boxes, because nobody wants to be seen with somebody dressed like that. <laughs> Absolutely, they're too embarrassed. Exactly. He's 82. He decided to build and wear um, what he's calling mobile housing to shield himself from the virus that's particularly deadly to seniors in a country where personal protective equipment is not sold at stores. I am at home. What about you? Reads a message on the box uh, in a witty nod to Cuba's coronavirus slogan, stay at home. So, um Boxes on the head, box on the torso, out in public at 82. Well, that's something to consider. Meanwhile, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos minor league baseball team, the class AA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins, had an idea that, as the saying goes, uh, uh, came out of left field. And it includes left field and the rest of the team's ballpark. With no baseball games. And this this should interest you. You're a baseball guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, With no baseball games being played, the Blue Wahoos have decided to use their stadium essentially as a hotel. And uh, they are making it available. Um, They're listed on Airbnb for guests to rent. And and, uh, less than 24 hours, all 33 dates that were offered were sold out. Now, you brought this story to my attention. This is kind of an interesting idea to generate a little revenue and interest in the field, if not the game itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, having your run of a stadium for a night just sounds like fun, whether you're into sports or not. That kind of uh, access to, you know, all of the things that go on around a stadium, I, I'd hope they're hot dogs, but, you know, other than that. Yeah, you wouldn't have any problem with social distance in a, a distancing no, no, no. in a stadium. Your entire family could sit in different sections. <laughs> I like the idea. However, all the dates that were uh, offered have already been scooped up. Uh, maybe they'll extend some dates and uh, we'll have a have an opportunity to rent through Airbnb the baseball stadium. Well, you may not have uh, remembered that uh, 2020 is an election year. And yes, in November, chaos will <laughs> most likely ensue. But one cat got a voter registration application in the mail after the cat was dead for 12 years, which raises questions about our system. So first of all, it's a cat. Second of all, the cat died. How did it get the uh, voter registration uh, in the system at all? But the voter registration application arrived in the mail. This is an Atlanta family said they received a voter registration form this week for their cat, Cody Timms, who's been you know, dead for 12 years. There's a huge push, but if they're uh, trying to register cats, I'm not sure who else is trying to, they're trying to register. The late feline's owner um, told the local news, I'm not sure if they are uh, trying to register dogs, mice, or snakes. Well, the Times say they found the form addressed to the cat in their mailbox on Wednesday. Uh, They described the cat as a great outdoor, indoor cat who loved his family, loved the neighborhood, and lived to the age of 18. But in terms of his voting prospects, he's a cat, and he's been dead for a very long time. Well, the Georgia Secretary of State's office told the station that they didn't send out the form and that third-party groups behind such applications often use mailing lists to obtain names and addresses of people, and in this case, a cat. Now, where did they obtain the name and address of a cat, one wonders, but nonetheless, uh, asked how Cody might have voted in the polls if he could have. Times uh, told the um, the local news he was a Democrat. So there you have it. Third party groups are uh, sending out registration forms that included somehow a cat. I mean, I've I've uh, I've used pet names before when signing up like at the the fair for mailing list because you, you want to know. Okay, who are you selling this to? So every once in a while, I'd put the dog's name on the list, um, and uh, just to see, because then you know, well, I know who I gave it to. Let's see who gets it. Ah, so, very um, interesting. You know, that uh, 
that's um, one of the ways. But uh, strangely enough, the the dog never did actually get registered to vote or offered registration to vote. However, he was drafted. Well, there you go. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. So stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Friday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend has joined me to take a look at the lighter side of the news. We were talking a few moments ago about a stadium that's available, or at least it was, on Airbnb for a 24-hour rental and uh, they made 33 dates available, all of which were immediately scooped up. Well, in Tokyo, um, in lieu of fans, apparently they're still uh, playing baseball games. They're filling the stadium with um, robots so that robots, robots are taking the place of fans. Uh, devoid of fans due to the coronavirus restrictions, the baseball team, at least one of them, they've come up with an imaginative replacement dancing robot. So they're not just uh, robots that are sitting and filling seats. They are dancing robots. Before their most recent um, Nippon professional baseball game against, uh, well, some game on Tuesday, over 20 robots danced to the team's fight song on a podium in the otherwise empty stadium. Two different robots um, and others on four legs, some on two, some on four, uh, that look like dogs, stamped and shimmied in a choreographed dance that's usually performed by the Hawks fans before games in the 40,000-capacity stadium. Now, some of the robots wore Hawks caps and waved flags supporting the team. Fans on social media had mixed reactions. I think this is like a dystopia, wrote one. Another called the performance insanely beautiful. Boosted by the support of robots, the Hawks won 4-3 as they look to defend their 2019 title. So dancing robots replacing fans. I don't know if the NBA, the NFL, if they're paying attention, but this could be our future. Well, I mean, you know, certainly you have the NBA will be restarting their season down in Disney World. And I, I just assumed Mickey and Minnie would be the audience. But uh, you know, Major League Baseball is also getting ready to start. A lot of them are doing uh, cardboard fans. Uh, where yeah, send in cardboard photos. fans. They're sending in photos of themselves and the team are making them into cardboard cutouts. <laughs> the fun thing is, I think uh, I think it's Oakland. Um, if you pay the money, you know, for to be a quote unquote fan in the stands, and a foul ball hits your cutout, they'll send you the ball. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I mean, that's that's kind of nifty. But uh, I, I just thought that's funny. <laughs> they'll send you the ball if it if it knocks over your cut cut out cut out. And it's less painful. Yes. Now, are they going to pipe in audience sounds? Because that's the the main incentive yes. for players. If you have yeah, a they are. stadium uh, full of people, so they're piping I don't in know sounds. If the NBA or NFL will be doing it, uh, but I know that Major League Baseball. I think most of the teams. I was just reading that yesterday. In fact, were planning on um, doing that, and some of them are even having uh, fans record audio and video that they can play in the stadiums from home <laughs> as well. So, well, there you mixing go. Mixing in actual fan calls, but. Uh, I, you know, it's it is a little weird to see an empty stand and hear fan chatter, as it were. But uh, I, you know, it's for the psychology of the players. It's all good. Yeah, at least they're playing. We hope. Well, a taste of democracy. South Korea's sixteen—that's one six sixteen-year fight for a green green onion breakfast cereal has ended. Yes, you heard me right. A green onion breakfast cereal. It's being hailed as a major win for democracy in South Korea. After 16 years in exile, a president this week triumphantly returned to claim his rightful place. 
on the front of a box of green onion flavored cereal. The limited edition of the Czech cereal sold out within two days when it hit online stores following years of almost ceaseless campaigning by enthusiasts. The long road to the cereal aisle began in 2004 when Kellogg's Korea launched a lighthearted marketing campaign for Czechs, a five-grain cereal asking South Koreans to vote on a new flavor. Well, the TV commercial offered two cartoon candidates in the presidential election for the Czech's Chaco Empire, chocolate-flavored Czechy and green onion-flavored Chaki. Well, the PR stunt was meant to end in an easy victory for sweet Czechy, but the people didn't agree. Votes for Chaki, which is the savory version, surged past those of Czechy, the sweet version, catching Kellogg's unawares, citing multiple votes by individuals. The company halted online voting, threw out duplicate votes, and declared Czechy the winner. I mean, that was their <laughs> designated winner. Uh, Chaki fans cried foul, decried Czechy's subsequent 16-year rule as that of an illegitimate tyrant. Chaki remained in the public consciousness via regular hashtags like Pray for checks and memes depicting the onion character as a freedom fighter. We never expected consumers would be interested in this product for over 16 years, says Kim Hee-yeon, a spokeswoman for Kellogg's Korea, speaking to Reuters. Every time we launched new cereals or had promotional events, online committees would repeatedly ask for the flavor. So, Chalky's success was so momentous that on the day that it was announced earlier this month, it surged past North Korea's uh, bombing of an inter-Korean liaison office to become the top trending topic on South Korean social media. Green onion breakfast cereal. Oh, my. I'm just I'm trying to think of how you would market that here in the United States. Green onion jacks. <laughs> uh, onion Krispies, uh, I mean, frosted green onions. Oy. And what do you what do you put on green onion checks? Do you put ketchup? I mean, what do you kale juice? I just I don't, don't know, know what you what you do with that. No, anyway, I, congratulations, I, yeah, South move. Korea. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, they can have the worldwide supply. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they pretty much sold out, so they probably do already have that. Well, a police chase in Oregon ended when a driver fleeing authorities in a stolen car crashed into a woman driving another stolen car, but was yet to be pursued by police. Well, this debacle took place on Monday when police responded to a report of a stolen Toyota Land Cruiser driving through downtown Newburgh. Yes, this is an Oregon story, according to the Newburgh Dundee police. Well, the pursuit ensued and, um, lasted for several blocks until the driver crashed into another car near an intersection. Well, police officers identified the driver of the first car as Randy Lee Cooper of, you guessed it, Portland. After taking Cooper into custody, the police realized that the second car was also reported stolen in an unrelated crime three weeks ago. Well, the driver of that car, Kristen Nicole Begu, was also found to be um, under the influence. So stolen car under the influence. Cooper was charged with unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, attempting to elude police, assault, and reckless driving. This actually made national news headlines. I'm always a little um, a little put out when stories out of the state of Oregon are like this one, just a little bit off, but it um, fits the profile that we've gained over the years since our mayor, the city of Portland's mayor, in the trench coat made headlines all across the country. It, it's it's one of those things where um, you know there's there's two things I think that are known from the odd news page. One is quote unquote 
Florida man. Yes. Because a lot of things happened to Florida man. And really upcoming pretty close behind at this point uh, and catching up fast is Oregon man and Oregon woman. Yeah, sadly, that's um, that is the case. Well, you brought this story to my attention a couple of weeks ago, James. Um, Amazon, of course, we know they bought the naming rights to Key Arena. But what they choose uh, chose to call it is, well, a story in and of itself, maybe diverting a little attention away from Oregon for a moment. Again, Amazon purchased the uh, Key Arena naming rights, but the venue will be known as Climate Pledge Arena rather than using the company's name, Climate Pledge Arena. Well, the arena, home to the city's incoming NHL franchise and WNBA Storm, will be powered 100% by renewable electricity and seeks to achieve a zero-carbon footprint. Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos, he broke the news a couple of weeks ago. NHL Seattle CEO Todd uh, Lewicki said that the in an interview on Thursday, a couple of weeks ago, that the arena aims to produce zero waste, will source food locally and reduce all plastics by 2024. He said the team had long been looking into um, increasing sustainability within the arena, but added that the Amazon deal takes things to a different level. So aside from the you know sustainability of the whole thing, to call it the Climate Pledge Arena is a little less than exciting. Uh, for those of us, if we actually care. Well, and the, the thing, too, of course, is that, you know, you're always looking for something, you know, to to kind of shorten and abbreviate wherever you're going, whether, it, you know, it's like the Moda Center, everyone calls it the Moda. I, I don't know how you shorten this, the pledge. I'm going to the pledge. We're going to polish furniture. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know what they're going to do. The climb, you know, is, is it, uh, if it gets too warm in there, is that global warming? I mean, yeah, that's, there are questions. There are a lot of questions. <laughs> and those questions, sadly, will remain unanswered. We need to go to break. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, James, you know I've been a longstanding critic of people who take pictures of what they purport to be the Loch Ness Monster. And even though we're living in the 21st century with telephones that take pictures better than some uh, telephoto lenses of yesteryear, somehow they're always grainier, just a little bit off. Well, there's a new picture that's emerged that actually is a pretty good picture, purporting to be the Loch Ness Monster, or Nessie as some refer to her. Well, people think that this tourist's incredible photograph has actually captured the Loch Ness Monster with some claiming it is the best picture ever of all the sightings. Now, Steve Chalice is from Southampton, and he photographed a creature from the shore uh, outside of the uh, castle on the banks of the Loch Ness when on holiday in Scotland. Now, he says he saw a ripple in the water. He assumed it was a big fish that he estimated was about eight feet long. He told the Daily Record, the local media there, uh, that he thought it was a catfish and only posted the, the uh, photos to see if people could help him identify the creature. He says, in his opinion, and I'm no expert, I think it's a large fish that got into the lock from the sea. Well, as to what it is personally, I think it's a catfish or something like that. I'm guessing it's like a sturgeon. You know, those things can be ancient and they can be huge. Well, some suggested, as he points out, that it's a sturgeon. That's what I think it is. Anyway, it's very large as um, uh, the bit you can see must be at least eight foot long. And you can um, tell what amounts to uh, how much of it is below the surface. Well, the water is very dark in Loch Ness, so it's hard to tell what anything is. But he saw a disturbance in the water in front of him and took the image. Then a second 
uh, second image and suddenly the fish or whatever it is came out of the water and he got even a better image. Now, it looks like a sturgeon to me. It doesn't have the long neck with the head at the end of it. Um, but at least there is a picture from the Loch Ness that looks like a picture from the 21st century, but doesn't look anything like the Loch Ness monster. So, you know, at least we, uh, we've got a clear image, something new. Well, it's nice that the technology has finally caught up with the monster. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you remember I saw what I believe to have been Ogopogo. That was not a sturgeon. It was not eight feet long. It was 20 feet long, if if uh, not longer. And it um, it was more, I mean, it could have been a large eel, you know, like a huge eel. Um, but it had more the motion of a well, what it, whatever the Loch Ness monster is. Anyway, saw it firsthand myself, Ogopogo. Did you? I, I think I recall that story, but I yeah, we actually talked about it on the air. I don't know if you were engineering at that time, but um, we had people call and talk about it as well. And some believed that it might have been; others had seen similar uh, creatures in the water. So I don't know what that thing was, but it wasn't a sturgeon. I can tell you, it wasn't a regular fish. It wasn't just swimming back and forth, side to side. It was swimming in the motion that one would expect, uh, more like a prehistoric dinosaur where the hump came out of the water and so it was swimming more up and down rather than side to side it was really rather interesting we stopped so, and so stared like at a, it for a long eel, time like an eel impersonating a dolphin basically yes maybe that's what okay. it was wow all my uh, all my hopes and dreams of having seen ogopogo have been dashed it was simply an eel impersonating Trying a dolphin wow well, i guess yep. it won't bring that up again nope <laughs> On a more serious note, I do want to let you know that there is an opportunity for a prayer vigil coming up this Sunday. I heard from a listener from Good Shepherd Church that's coming up uh, this Sunday from 1.30 to 2.30 at the Portland Police Department at Southwest 2nd in downtown Portland. Uh, there's going to be an opportunity to pray for the police department, for government in general, for the state of Oregon, for the nation and the hearts of the protesters who have made the downtown Portland area look like a war zone. It's not a political um, event. There w won't be any signs. It's just people praying. And I know there are prayer events that have been taking place all across the Portland metro area, all across the state of Oregon, at the state capitol, and, and so on. But I did want to bring this to your attention. And again, this is not a political statement. It's not a political uh, protest. It's not a demonstration. It's an opportunity for believers to come together around a, an edifice that represents the seat of power and order in our community to just simply pray. And I want to say thank you to Gwen for bringing this to my attention. Uh, and again, I'm heartened whenever I hear about a gathering like this one, and they have been taking place uh, from the very beginning of this pandemic um, right up to the present. As I mentioned, this has been uh, in local uh, places in uh, Southwest Portland in Old Town um, at sites where there's been uh, violence. And even during protests, there have been prayer vigils uh, being uh, held, uh, praying with and for police officers, praying with and for uh, protesters. Some of the people who live in the downtown area, um, homeless individuals, people are coming to faith in Christ or asking for prayer and so on. This is uh, just another opportunity for believers to come together. And again, that's coming up this Sunday from 1.30 to 2.30 this after, uh, that afternoon at the Portland Police Department at 1111 Southwest 2nd in Portland. Social distancing will be observed. 
Face masks are required. It's not a political event. It's not a demonstration, just an opportunity for believers to come together, to lift their voices in common uh, prayer, asking the Lord uh, for uh, his help and to intervene. So we hope that you'll take the opportunity to uh, meet with fellow believers. Well, James, we're just about out of time. Um, I wanted to mention to our listeners what's happening next week. I've been given an opportunity. It's it's a different kind of week. Yeah, uh, an opportunity to guest host for Salem LA host uh, for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So for the first time, I'm going to uh, host a three-hour program those three days in San Diego and Los Angeles. Um, It's a bit of a challenge because uh, trying to broadcast from my home to a large market like uh, San Diego and Los Angeles uh, poses some challenges, but we're going to pull that off. Uh, and you'll be able to um, hear some of what we're broadcasting. Maybe you can better explain how we're going to do that, James. I, I will do that. I'll do my best. Um, on Monday on this program from four to six, we'll actually feature uh, the Eric Metaxas show. Um, however, uh, Monday night, if you download the podcast, you will actually get the show from Los Angeles and San Diego. On Tuesday and Wednesday, um, you'll hear two of the hours from that day's show um, rebroadcast um, in the four to six slot that you've done earlier in the afternoon down there. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to uh, – it's a little um, intimidating. It's a much larger market, but we're going to do what it, we it's do. It's only like 20 million people. No yeah, biggie. that's all. <laughs> we're going to do what we do. <laughs> and uh, – Look forward to that opportunity. Now, also, I want to remind you or let you know, perhaps for the first time, that on Thursday, we have our Africa New Life Radiothon. And so we have an opportunity as a community to support this ministry that began and is sustained uh, in large measure by the Portland metro area. So Africa New Life's Radiothon will be on Thursday of next week as well. So we're looking forward to that. And then on Friday, we look forward to just um, taking a look at the lighter side of the news and also providing uh, some headlines. So keep us in your prayers and we'll look forward to uh, rejoining you next week. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.